This is a Federal News Network podcast. Pentagon financial leaders say they're making measurable progress toward finally earning a clean audit opinion, so much so that they're now willing to predict a tentative date when that will happen. Don't hold your breath. 2028. That's based on a series of corrective action plans designed to fix the major issues that have turned up so far in the first of three years of audits. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has an update on DOD's long journey toward auditability. Testifying before the House Armed Services Committee last week, defense officials emphasized that 2028 is by no means a sure thing, but that date does match up with current schedule for DOD officials to finish the corrective action plans to address the material weaknesses on the department's current audits. And Douglas Glenn, DOD's deputy chief financial officer, says the department is reasonably confident that after three years of full-scale financial audits, officials now know where the major problems lie. I'm very thrilled to say that the audit, last year's audit introduced no new issues. Unfortunately, that takes a little bit of an explanation because if you're counting material weakness, it goes up by one over the last over prior year. But the only reason it went up was because our IG friends expanded one prior year IT material weakness into four categories, which had already existed. So I'm, I'm hoping, very much hoping and believing that we have all the financial issues on the table. Specifically, auditors identified 26 separate material weaknesses during the fiscal 2020 audit. The previous year's audit included a catch-all material weakness dealing with financial IT systems, but the DoD Inspector General decided to describe those problems in more granular detail this time around. Those four new weaknesses are legacy systems, configuration management and security management, access controls, and segregation of duties. That new formulation illustrates the extent to which outdated information technology plays a big role in DOD's auditability problems. Out of the more than 3,500 separate findings auditors made in 2020, about half had to do with IT. Glenn says there are about 400 IT systems that handle financial data across the department right now, and modernizing and consolidating them is a major challenge. CIO and CFO are linking arms because we very much get that less IT systems is, equals less IT cost, less cyber vulnerability. We're ultimately talking about change management here. You know, it's not like it's 400 IT systems that are only capture financial information. They have financial information and other reasons and value propositions. So it's not as easy as you think to saying, well, hey, just put them all in one IT, one financial system. Um, plus there's the, the comfort zone. People hate, hate new systems, and they love the systems that, uh, that when you try to take them away. You have to tell them exactly where they need to go or, or how to replace that functionality, and you have to hold them accountable for a, a decommissioned and It really is a challenge, and we're doing that. In quarterly meetings, joining with CIO and CFO in the services and saying, all right, what systems are out there? Where's the duplicate functionality? Where are you going to migrate to? And when are you going to do it? Of course, not all of DOD's remaining problems have to do with IT. One recently discovered example added to the list of material weaknesses in 2019 relates to the department's management of the F-35 program. More than 3 million pieces of government-owned property for the F-35, worth more than $2 billion, are completely unaccounted for, at least as far as DOD's financial statements are concerned. While the planes are all accounted for and on the service books and under audit, the parts and equipment, and we're talking about tens of billions of dollars, unfortunately are not on the department statements and therefore they're not subject to audit and the audit scrutiny at least the financial statement audit scrutiny the ig and gao are still free to go in there for and the contract audit agency are still free to go in there but what we're doing about it is we're counting all the stuff that's out there that's on it's about three quarters done, uh, complete last time i checked 
We're moving it to an accountable property system that's in DOD and not just at our contractors. Uh, and we're going to subject to audit procedures. We're going to get the findings. We're going to put corrective action plans against those findings. And we're going to hold ourselves accountable for progress. But DOD officials say they're making progress in other areas, too. And the findings from the first few years of audits have helped focus their efforts. In the Department of the Navy, for example, property accountability has been a major focus area. The audit helped the Navy realize it had millions of pieces of property sitting in its inventory that it simply didn't know about. Alalia Jenkins, the Navy's acting comptroller, says the actions the service has had to take to help deal with the property issues the audit identified have led to the discovery of more than $3 billion in spare parts. One of the areas that I say I'm always very proud of what we were able to accomplish just year two of the audit. We essentially did a 100% count of all of our real property assets, fence to fence, and were able to establish a baseline. And always use an example of every year we go after and continue that inventory count where we are identifying assets that have been demolished, removed, and clean up the records and freeing up um, uh, dollars, sustainment dollars that we can put towards um, other projects that we have um, in the, in the sustainment. We are identifying materials that at the local level we had visibility, but it was not in a property system. So we made it available to fill um, open requisitions. Uh, we had examples uh, where we had planes at Lemoore waiting on parts and pieces. And by identifying warehouses of, say, F-18 landing gears that we didn't know, we were able to put that in place and uh, get those planes uh, repaired and, uh, and up and flying direct. Defense officials are also quick to point out that there are some areas of the department that already do have clean opinions. Eight separate DOD entities have earned unmodified opinions. Altogether, Glenn says those entities are responsible for more than a third of the department's assets. The annual audit regimen has set the department on an irreversible course in support of business reform, reinforcing accountability to taxpayers, and directly contributing to enhanced military readiness. I continue to equip the workforce with the resources and tools to respond to audit requests and remediate our audit findings. The department will achieve its audit goals of business excellence and sustain an improved level of proficiency for the benefit of the warfighter and the American people. I suspect we all look forward to the day when we hear on the evening news or the drive home, for the first time in history, the U.S. government has achieved a clean audit opinion. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, 
that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. 
It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, 
But we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.